0: Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church weekly sermons this is the morning service of Sunday the 21st of November 2010 entitled Grace and Truth and the Bible reading is taken from John chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. Here's brother Chris Mansfield the gospel of John chapter 1 now Cecil has kind of got a little bit to answer for for this because in one of his prayers he was talking about the Lord tabernacling amongst us so this kind of like spread from there so we're in John chapter 1 very familiar to us and I'll read from verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him and without him was there nothing made that was made and him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came um, to witness, to, um, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which is lighteth in every man that cometh into the world. He was he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. For as many as to receive him, to give them um, power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, the scripture text is going to be verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, if there's one thing that we can glean from this scripture, um, the main point in which I want to try and get across to you is Jesus was full of grace and and truth. Um, we're going to look at uh, some of the, the ways in which he dwelt amongst us. We're going to look at the, the word in which, what dwelt means. Um, we're going to look at g- what glory means. And we're going to look at the balance between truth and grace, which are very important. Okay. So as we said, we're looking at John's gospel. And John makes a powerful point when he tells us that Jesus, in verse 14, dwelt amongst us. He uses a word which the early church would have been very familiar with. Remember that the early church were mainly Jewish believers. First converts were Jewish. So they would have understood this word. And it says, the word was mine flesh and dwelt amongst us. Dwelt in Greek means to tabernacle among us. And this is what uh, Cecil said in his prayer probably about three weeks ago. And this is the reason that I'm bringing this message. Or you might say that he pitched his tent among us. Or he made his abode among us. Now, the first thing that I want to kind of point out to you is the, the aspect of the tent. Now you say, what are we going to be talking about tents for? We're supposed to be talking about the Bible. But at the end of this, you'll understand with a few scriptures what I'm trying to say. Jesus' first coming was an important coming. But it was, if you remember, his ministry was only three and a half years. He was on the earth for 33 and a half years. And his first coming was to redeem us back. He's our kingsman redeemer, isn't he? He's the one that brought us back into a right relationship with God. When he comes the second time, he's going to be here for a thousand years. It's going to be a more permanent thing. He's going to have his throne. He's going to have his palace. People are going to give homage to him. But what we're looking at here is his first coming. And he dwelt among us, he tabernacled amongst us, he pitched his tent among us. Now, a tent is a very humble dwelling. Um, People in the time when this was written, you know, shepherds, nomads would have dwelt in tents. And um, so Jesus chose, if you look at the Greek word, that he, he pitched his tent among us. And it gives us the aspect or the shadow, like Steve was talking this morning, of the aspects of a humble dwelling place. And it was very temple, temporal, and it was fixed to the earth, very flimsily, And also, it could be put away very quick, you know, and moved to somewhere else. And um, you don't need to turn to this. I've got quite a few scriptures, and I'll read some, and you can turn to some. In Luke 9:58, we know this scripture. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have the nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this scripture is pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming was for a purpose. It was a very um, flimsy, um, like um, his first coming was a very flimsy connection with the world, but very important. Um, The second um, point is that a tent is very flimsy. It's not like a brick building, you know, it's not very strong. And within a tent, unless um, you've got a very, very expensive tent, some of these tents are quite, you know, fantastic now. And, um, but, you know, I can imagine the tents of these times were very flimsy, good for the job, very flimsy. And um, the scripture that comes to mind when we refer to the fact of the tent being very flimsy was in Hebrews 4.15. You can turn there and it says, Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted, but thank God there was no possibility for him to sin. He was sinless. But there we've got a, an example of the, the tent being very flimsy and available to the earth's woes, the earth's winds, the earth's strains. So that's another aspect of the tent. And last Sunday, we had Remembrance Sunday, and um, I was kind of like, didn't really know that I was going to be preaching this. This was going to be one of the Wednesday meetings uh, kind of things, you know. So this was all currently in the pipeline. And um, we had Remembrance Sunday last week, and I noticed on the news... Um, there was kind of aerial shots of people in Afghanistan and um, places like that. And the, um, the thing that struck to me was the military, dwelling tents, and this really blessed me when I started to look at this. And I've got here, that there was lots of footage on the news within the newspapers, you know, we were remembering the soldiers, and you know, you haven't really got to agree with why they're there or what they're there for, but you know, we should support our soldiers if you, um, if you think that's right. Um, but Jesus, if you like, declared war against the devil, hadn't he? He pitched his military tent on earth, declaring war. And we know that there's a prophecy in Genesis 3.15, and he'd previously prophesied within that prophecy um, that he was going to, you know, have war with the serpent. And um, now Jesus had pitched his military tent behind enemy lines, and he declared war. And in 1 John 3.8... It says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest or made real to us that it might destroy the works of the devil. So there we have another aspect of a tent that Jesus came, the military dwelling tents, and he came to destroy the works of the devil. Um, As I've said, a tent is also flimsily flicks to the earth, and um, the patriarchs within the Old Testament also You know, they were dwelling in tents, and they moved around a lot. And um, they confessed that they were strangers, if you remember, and that they were pilgrims in a foreign land. And they were looking, their focus was not on their tent or where they was. They were looking, weren't they, for the promised land. And um, so did Jesus. He left us an example that all we can see really, you know, is temporal. If the patriarchs were looking for that promised land, and they were focusing their thought, they you know well, they're literally on the land with a tent and a little fire, but their absolute end focus was on the promised land. And in Hebrews 13:14, it says there towards the end of, the, of that uh, scripture, it says, "For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come." So there we've got some aspects of what the word um, dwelt tabernacle abode, tent, pitched his tent among us. And we can draw some of the spiritual aspects from this uh, uh, Greek word. But there's an even deeper understanding to this. If you say tabernacle, what are you going to think of? You're going to think, right, Exodus, where can I find Moses? Where can I find the tabernacle in the Old Testament? And that's what I thought. So um, more than all these examples, John... Being a good Jewish um, boy or a Jewish man, he had a good understanding of the Old Testament. And without a doubt, if you look at the Scripture, it says he, he tabernacled amongst us or dwelt amongst us. Remember, we're reading this in English. We, you know, in the Greek, it's given a more descriptive word to that word, dwelt, and the aspect of tabernacle would have been in the word dwelt. So John would have thought maybe of the word tabernacle, and you know, it says. Basically, the tabernacle was a large tent. It's even called the tent of congregation, isn't it, if you look in Exodus? So, and that was pitched in the wilderness. And um, God had given instructions to Moses to build this tent and um, he was to erect it. And, um, you know, there were some that were crafted in stitching and some that were crafted in iron. And all these people, you know, gave from their um, works that God had given them to build this tent. this wonderful tent. And if you remember, it looked very kind of like plain from the outside. But the closer that you got in, the more expensive things got. And the more glorifying it got to God till we get to the mercy seat right in the middle. And um, so John, you know, was possibly thinking of the tabernacle because it was a large tent. And um, John wrote just a little bit after, doesn't it, it says he, he tabernacled amongst us. And um, and then we beheld his glory in verse 14. There's a strong connection between the word dwelt and the word glory. Um, John must have had in mind the Hebrew word Shekinah. Now, Shekinah is a word that you won't find in the Bible, um, but it's a word that it describes God for the Jewish people without using his name. So they would refer to the presence of God rather than God himself. Because you remember, the Jewish people couldn't write God's name down. it was They couldn't speak God's name. and um, They took things uh, more literal and they were frightened of blaspheming God's name. So they thought, we're not even going to say God's name. So there's a connection between dwelt and glory. And we'll look at some of the things that point to this fact, that the word is Shekinah. Now Shekinah is not... God, It's the visible manifestation of God. It's like the, ref- if you like, the best word is like the reflection of God. It's not God, it's not the source, but it's actually God's presence that we can see. Okay? So that is the word Shekinah. And as we've said, John must have had this in mind. The closest that the Bible comes to using the word Shekinah is in the book of Exodus. And it's back to the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And um, Moses had finished the tent. And it says, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of congregation because of the cloud abode uh, thereon, and the glory filled the tabernacle. And that's in Exodus 40, 35. So we've got Jesus being filled with glory, and we've got the tabernacle where Moses can't enter because of God's glory. Now, this is why John is thinking over these things. We've got someone filled with something here within our scripture in John 14, and we've got the tabernacle filled with something where Moses can't enter. So the word abode in Hebrew is Shekin. Now that doesn't sound a lot different to Shekinah, does it? And it conveys the idea of dwelt as well. For the Jewish writers, the word Shekinah is closely associated with glory, as we've just said, although it's not to be confused. Shekinah is the glory of God, but not the source, as I've just said. It's also very interesting in, the, in Hebrew, the word tabernacle is mishkanah. And they're all linked together. So you've got mishkanah, shekinah, and shakan. And they're all got the same root Hebrew word. So you've got tabernacle, dwelt, glory, from the same Hebrew root word. Now I find that very interesting because we've got all them aspects in Jesus in our scripture here. So back to the Lord Jesus Christ, As I've said, just as the cloud or the fire expressed the presence of Jehovah dwelling in the tabernacle, remember he was in either um, a pillar of fire. Um, So Jesus dwelt amongst us in the Shekinah glory, but the presence of God was dwelt in a fleshly tabernacle. So Jesus dwelt amongst us in a fleshly tabernacle. And we've got the Old Testament tabernacle where God's presence was dwelt within there. Now, we made an important point here. Jesus hadn't got God on him. Jesus was God. We read that at the beginning. It wasn't the you know, the first time we see Jesus in the scripture wasn't Jesus' first time that he existed. The word was God. He'd got a pre-human existence, but he tabernacled that existence in front of us in a, in a fleshly tent, for want of a better word. Okay. So it's not that Jesus, this is not the first time that Jesus was around. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You know, we've got scriptures that, as we've just read, that prove that he was a man, you know, he was a man, and there was a purpose for him to come as a man, but before that, he was God. So it is similar, but it's not the same. But Jesus's glory was veiled in a tabernacle, and the glory in the Old Testament tackle was, you know, very similar. Um where have I got to? So God dwells in Jesus in a tabernacle of flesh. The world has lost the glory of God because of sin, as we know. Um, sin has caused a variety of uh, problems. There's grooves in here where pastor. I thought there was grooves where pastor had wore the uh, the slots out, but it's not. Um so sin has lost the glory of God, haven't we? our connection with God has been broken. And in Romans 3.23, we all know this scripture, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We must remember glory's in there. We've come short of this glory, haven't we? And in Romans 5.2, it says, we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So ultimately, we can receive the glory of God back through salvation in Jesus but um, we're talking about the Shekinah of God and it says that um, we look through a glass dimly it says in 2 um, Corinthians 3.18 we we all with open face behold as a glass the glory of the Lord and we are changed into the same image from glory to glory even by the spirit of the Lord Um, and we are known as God's saints, you know, I was an ex-Catholic, I always thought saints were going to come, you know, holy and high lows, but if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You know, you don't need some Pope to say you're a saint. The Bible says if you're saved, you're a saint. And we are saints of the Lord, and, um, but we're also lights of the world. So just as the Shekinah of God was veiled in Christ and, re- and, as- and attributed in different ways, we are the lights of the world. And we should reflect God's Shekinah also to the people that we see. You know, we're attaining to be like Christ, but we should reflect God's glory within us. And that's very important. You know, are we doing that? Are we striving to be like that? Are we striving to be like Jesus? Um, So we must reflect, like a big mirror, the glory of God. You know, a mirror, you you never... When you look in a mirror, you never think, oh, that's a wonderful mirror. You, you look at the image in the mirror, don't you? You know, and that's the same. We, we shouldn't receive any of the glory. The reflection should bounce God's glory back and other people should see him. And that's what we must do. So back to John 1.14, which is our scripture text. John says that the glory, this is really where I want to go, was full of grace and truth. As we um, have looked in the Old Testament tabernacle, tabernacle, this tabernacle was full of fire and cloud to the point where Moses, he he couldn't enter into the presence of God because the tabernacle was filled with God's glory. Um, Jesus, the personal manifestation of the glory of God was also full of something. As the Old Testament tabernacle was filled with God's glory Jesus was filled with something as well and it says there that he was full of grace and truth. As the presence of the Shekinah was in the tabernacle of Moses, we see that in the, you know, we see it in a fire and a a cloud, don't we? As we see the presence of the glory in Jesus, we see that in grace and truth. So we're going to see God's presence, God's Shekinah, God's glory revealed to us. Through grace and through truth. In 1 John 17, which is a bit further down, if you've got your, um, your Bible open text, the law was given by Moses, and then it says, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So, the fire of the Old Testament tabernacle represents the law, which is contrasted by the grace and the truth, which was in Christ. Jesus came to fulfil the law and we've got like the judgment of the fire within the Old Testament, but we've got grace and truth displayed in Christ. So, what does it mean then to be filled with grace and truth? It um, sound a contradiction. Can you have things, you know, two things filled with equal um, amounts of liquid? In you know, can you know, can sound a bit of a contradiction? But there must be a balance of grace and truth. Too much grace without truth. And we end up with a very social gospel. The gospel is more about meeting people's needs physically, helping people, but it never confronts sin, which is, you know, a shame. You know, you've got very, very good people in the worldly eyes that do a lot of good things. They are literally helping people. You could say they're displaying grace, but they're never telling them about true salvation they're never telling them about the need for a savior they're never confronting using the word of God to confront people about sin so grace unbalanced is error you must be very careful with that if we are got an unbiblical view of what grace is or we let human mindset come into what we see grace as it becomes unbiblical but it's no good you know what we think about grace or what we think about truth we need to use the word of God So we must have that right balance. And as I said, if you've got too much grace in its wrong context, you end up with a very um, social gospel, meeting people's needs, but never confronting sin. Too much truth, on the other hand, with no grace at all, it becomes a very hard, self-opinionated truth with no grace, with no compassion, with no... It's just like you lord it over someone without wanting to really teach them. It's very hard and, you know, you think of the Pharisees, it says that they lorded it over people with their, you know, they bound things on people and they'd got the truth of Moses, without a doubt, but they were using it without grace. So, um, too much um, truth, but no grace means truth for a very hard Opinionated truth, leaving us with no hope. Because if we haven't got the grace, we can't be saved, can we? We might have the truth, but without grace, the two can't come together and we can't be saved by God's grace, can we? So the truth needs to be the same. In Colossians 2 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. So this is talking about um, worshipping angels and traditions of men and philosophy. And now, all true, everything comes from God. You know, true philosophy, true theocracy comes. It all stems from God. So whatever they are misusing originally, it's come from God anyway. But they are receiving the truth within themselves, and it's puffing them up. You know, I don't really know many professors, but um, you know, it's elevating them. I've talked to Panos about his professor, and he sounds a very I'm not say what he, he describes him as, but it's like he doesn't want to dwell amongst more mortals kind of thing. He's elevated himself among, you know, above the normal people, you know, say like me. But this is man's truth, man's opinion of what truth is, man's philosophy, and the Bible says that it's vain, it's deceitful, and it's after the tradition of men. And in Colossians 2.18, at the end it signs there, you can turn there in um, Colossians 2.18. Right at the end it says, vainly puffed up, by a fleshly mind. So our mind can be so easily puffed up. You can know your Bible inside out and be not saved and have the truth and not have any idea of what grace is. You can know where to turn to it. You can quote scriptures but without true truth revealed to us through God's word we're wasting our time. It's man's tradition. It's deceit because it's not based on the word of God. As you know, We've got a few radiators going in at the church and I've been sticking them in for you. And uh, I'm a gas engineer. So I'm well out of my comfort zone here. <laughs> um, but when you're commissioning a boiler, when you're actually starting to light the boiler up, um, the burner pressure has to be set exact. Because obviously if it's not set to the right burner pressure, you can get some really bad detrimental consequences. This is where common monoxide poisoning comes in. And so you, you set the gas pressure at the exact mixture with air, to receive the best possible amount of energy out of that gas, I and mean, everything's got a U value, um, a calorie value, and we want the you know gas at the minute is a fortune in it, and we want to get the best amount of energy out of that gas to put through the heat in this church, and it applies to anything, and that is called stoic conditions. To have the perfect conditions for the flame to burn with the right amount of air, it's called stoic conditions. So. You know, this was in mind of me because that's what I do. But we must apply this to grace and truth. We have got to have the right balance of grace and truth. Otherwise, we're going to fall into these other categories of helping, but not telling anyone about sin or being very opinionated and not giving any grace. Um, I've got a joke here. I don't know whether to tell you a joke. But uh, the man, he jumps out of an aeroplane, he, he pulls his parachute and he's falling down and he, he can't get his parachute to work and there's a man starts coming up from the ground, kind of on fire and a bit of draggled and the, he says, oh, if I could ask someone to help me with this parachute. So this man meets him in the end, he says, uh, do you know anything about parachutes? And the man says, no, do you know anything about boilers? No. So that's the, you know, ultimately, if you don't get this gas pressure right, you're gonna have a really detrimental effect on people. Um, and the same with grace and truth, if we don't have the right mixture or the correct biblical mixture of grace and truth, we're gonna, there's going to be detrimental effects. And I've experienced this. I couldn't wait for the Jehovah's Witnesses to come to my door. But it wasn't to show them who Jesus was. It was to know oh, I could win the argument. And that's wrong. It's not about winning the argument. It's about them winning the argument, them coming to Christ. And we need to be aware of this when we're talking to people. We must have the right balance Otherwise, you'd be like that man trying to pull his parachutes, and, you know. The word grace means, we all know what the word grace means. It means unmerited favor. It means beneficial acts, um, merciful, gracious, doing good to all, seeking man's welfare by great sacrifices of love. The word truth means, this is interesting. Well, it, you know, you might think it's not that interesting, but I do. Con- unconcealed, manifested, actual true facts. Of things that are true, now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So when we put the two together, grace and truth together, um, means unearned forgiveness. That is forgiveness provide, provided to those who truly don't deserve it. It was Jesus, full of grace and truth, who said to the adulteress, "Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more." That's in John 8:11. It was Jesus, full of grace and truth, who said to the paralyzed man, you know, he was brought by his four friends, wasn't he? Son of man, I'm sorry, son, son be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven you, forgiven thee. And that is in Matthew 9 too. It was Jesus, full of grace and truth, who said to the thief hanging on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's in Luke 23, 43. We must be careful not to pass over the thought that grace is always combined with truth. Jesus declared the truth, and in him there was no falsehood at all. He was not like the false prophets. He was not like false messiahs. He was not like an imposter or a head of a religious body or religious person who had some truth or some grace. Jesus, the Bible says, was full of Of grace and truth. So truth reveals the sinful condition of the woman at the well. Jesus says to her, you have five husbands and he whom you now have is not your husband. Now that's the truth. And that is in John 4.18. On the other hand, we carry on reading in John 4, grace was applied to the situation because Jesus stayed there for two days and many more believed and his word. So, we did, you know, it is grace and truth were applied to that group of people as well. And that's in John 4, 40 to 41. You can see there that grace is always accompanied with truth. Then forgiveness is not based on a denial of sin. As if to say sin is nothing. Truth reveals sin. Grace forgives sin. That's really important, isn't it? We could just stay there all day, couldn't we, and just think about that. Truth reveals sin. Grace forgives sin. Truth from the word of God. Not our truth, not our grace, not man's truth, not man's grace. Truth revealed to us from the word of God. And then we'll be in a good position then to help and to point them to the Saviour. From the beginning, in both the law and the prophets, God promised... To be with his people in a more permanent way. As we said at the beginning, God dwelt amongst us in a very temple of existence, veiled his glory in a tabernacle of flesh. When we start looking now at the second coming, it's a more permanent fixture. He's not come just for a while. There's a minimum of a thousand years on this earth, isn't there? That he's going to dwell amongst us. So from the beginning in the law and the prophets, God had promised to be with his people in a more permanent way. When the tabernacle was built, God said, and there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So there we've got the Shekinah of God sanctifying the tabernacle of God. And that's in Exodus 29, 43. And it i just said, it also becomes a promise of the future. And we know this scripture. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with me. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And that is in Revelation 21.3. Jesus' second coming is a very more permanent picture than his first coming. He's, like I said, he's got his, it's not a temporal tent dwelling, um, temporal thing. When he comes the second time, it's a very more permanent thing. You know, he's going to be king. He's going to be recognized as king. He's he's going to reign, he's going to have his throne of David and he's going to receive his kingdom. So Jesus' second coming is very more permanent than his first coming. Well, that's all really good, you know, maybe we might have learned some things. We might have uh, hopefully come under some um, unction to do something. But where do we stand today? Where do we stand? Are you saved? Are you spreading God's gospel of Jesus with grace and with truth? When we speak about Jesus, we must remember it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin. It's not a good idea for us, in one sense, to be picking at people's sins like a big scab. Just pick, pick, pick. Because it's not the combination of grace and truth. You know, the gospel is God's gospel, isn't it? We can't interpret it how we want to interpret it. It's got to be preached, how God says he wants it to be preached. And I personally do not like to hear people on the streets not saying anything about Jesus, but just condemning homosexuality. Now, we know that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. We know that lawyers won't go to heaven, you know. But you can't stand declaring that from the streets, condemning people, and then giving them no opportunity to receive the grace. It's wrong. That ain't the gospel. That's your interpretation of what you think these people might need. Now, in the Old Testament, God sent prophets to declare this to his own people. So it was his own prophet going to his own people, and they did that kind of thing. They warned about spiritual adultery. They warned about fornication. But it's not our job to be very militant with our truth. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of truth. It's the word of God convicts the word of truth and sometimes we can use our sword in the wrong way because we're not using it with the right balance of grace and truth so it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the word of world of truth now in personal conversation it's slightly different Jesus sat with a woman at the well it was a one-on-one conversation if these kind of things come up you can say well, the Bible says this, the Bible doesn't, you know, it says that. It's not you that are judging. It's the word of God that's judging on your behalf. And that is the right method in using God's truth. If we start saying, well, I think this, or I think that, or I should say you should do this, it's wrong. We should use the word of God. Jesus was the word that dwelt amongst us as well, wasn't he? And we should also use the word more so in personal conversation because they might feel more comfortable in talking about things that they find hard to deal with or sins that they might have. But the balance must be right, grace and truth. It's God's gospel that we proclaim, isn't it? It's not our interpretation or we might think... Some people, you know, they they stand on the street and they get heckled, but they're getting heckled because it's their interpretation of what they think might create a bit of a stir-up within people in the street. Now... We don't seek to do those kind of things. If you're proclaiming grace and truth in its right context, it may have that effect. But it's going to be contained within the word of God. And God said his word would not return void. If you are interpreting things with your own element of truth on them, you know, you deserve what you get, I think. You deserve it. Because it's not based on this book. It's based on what you think might provoke a bit of a stink in the street. And too many people in the street, I just walk past. Walk past. So grace and truth. Jesus displayed this. We've looked at the scriptures. Jesus had got that correct balance. And we can sometimes, you know, draw alongside someone and they might feel comfortable talking about, you know, problems that they've got. So then we can say what the Bible says about sin. But we shouldn't be so proud to think that we can stand on the street and condemn people. We are sinners saved by grace. The gospel is the gospel. It doesn't need any interpretation. The truth is the truth, and that also doesn't need any interpretation. On the other hand, you know, you might be saved. You might be on your quest for truth. You might be seeking within yourself to find truth. You might be on a pilgrimage somewhere to find truth, or you might be on your, trying to find out what the truth is. There was a man in the Bible that says, what is truth? Who knows who said that? Pontius Pilate said that to Jesus, what is truth? And that is in John 18, 38. Jesus really couldn't answer him because he was, he'd got to keep silent before his accusers. He'd already said what he needed to say, say but at this point, it was, he'd got to go to the cross for us, hadn't he? Jesus could have said lots of things to him about what the truth is. But he couldn't really answer him because of prophecy. But Pontius Pilate said, What is truth? Truth is not something that you spend your whole life looking for. Some people do spend a whole life looking for the truth. Truth is not to be found within yourself. I'm going to find my inner truth, and all, you know, it's not going to be found there. Truth is not found within religion or within religious practices um and as we've read man's opinion of what truth is is vain it's deceit and i typed in on the internet some t- tibetan monk quotes just to say how stupid some of these sayings are that just leave you in a position where you think i kind of understand that but i need to find out a bit more about truth and this is some tibetan monk quotes it's hard to fill a grass which is already full that's pretty obvious well, is that a Tibetan monk quote it's like a glass is full here. can you get anything else more in it to me that's pretty but that is one of their sayings so there must be some inner deep meaning to that there also this is another one no matter how many things how many think you to be wrong when you're right you're still right of course the opposite still holds now, that's, a, that's like just crazy isn't it it's like saying when you're right you're right but when you're wrong you're wrong but if the opposite is right then you're still right but you might be wrong So these are what men, these people are holy in the world's view of them on their seek for what truth is. You know, the Tibetan monks are classed as peaceful, truth-bearing people, you know. But, back to the point of spoiler, what is truth? In Judaism as well, there's another saying. If you have two Jews, you have three opinions. So that's another good one that I thought applied. Truth is not abstract. Truth is not like the emperor's new clothes where you can't see it but everybody else can, or they can see it and nobody else can. Truth is not found in your personal pilgrimage. Truth is not found really on what you can find. Jesus said, in John 14:6, "I am the truth, the life." no man come to the father but by me i want to introduce you to someone who's the truth it's jesus christ he is the truth if you are not a christian today and you are being caught up in the net of trying to find out what truth is it's contained within a man it's jesus christ the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Here's the gospel. Here contains Christ. We are not left alone. Truth and grace have come to us. He has pitched his tent among us. Amen.